All right, everybody, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. Here's the deal. Joshua is the, uh, what is he? He's, he's leader number two. It's a tough act to follow. Everyone knows that. When you have a star, a famous leader like Moses, the next guy up, the next person up, man, you feel sorry for him. I mean, you feel sorry for it in politics. You feel sorry for it, whether it's a coach or a school board or a teacher. The second person up has a, has a difficult road to hoe, uh, a lot of shoes to fill. Well, Joshua is the next leader in line for Israel after Moses, right? Well, he calls this person that we're about ready to look at in this text, he calls her a prostitute whose name is Rahab. All right, James, the brother of Jesus, like the legit, like literal brother of Jesus, calls her the porne. Today, we call her the porn star. Or in our uh, behind closed doors and private conversations, we'd call her the whore. The Haggadah, a Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, so there were commentaries in the Old Testament, on the Old Testament that were written during the Greeks and the early Roman period. So they were already studying the scriptures and already telling us what the scriptures mean, and people were already, maybe there were some pastors or preachers in the Old Testament or in, in those days that would use these commentaries to help them read passages like Joshua, right? The Haggadah calls Rahab four of the most beautiful women in the world. And goes on to say, the Haggadah goes on to say is that Rahab slept with all the most powerful men in the world, which made her incredibly influential, right? She had, like, she had computer files on all of them, right? She had computer files on all the politicians and the military leaders, the religious leaders, the cultural revolutionaries, the big tech CEOs, the corporate folks. She had files on all of them, and that's why um, she was really, really well-informed, and that's why as a spy, the spies knew this, and that's why she was a good place to go and find some information. This explains Rahab's direct access to the king, which we're going to see in a minute when we read it in verse 2. She has direct access to the king. What prostitute has direct access to the king? It also explains why the king and all the king's men believe everything she says to them. She's going to spin a tail, and they just take it hook, line, and sinker. There's something else you should know about this text, though, before we get into it. Hebrew scholars are very concerned about the highly sexual language in verses 1 through 3. Now, in your English translation, it's all been smoothed out. But in verses 1 through 3, in the original language, there are things called double entendres, which just means this, there are double meanings everywhere. So the question that the reader, you and me and the ancient reader, when they would read the original language, they go, is it meaning A, like highly sexually charged, or is it meaning B, nothing to see here? And the reader would say, well, which one is it? And the Bible would answer, yes. And of course, that's the point, right? And you're saying, well, what do you mean, what? What? Wait, Jeff, what's the point? The point is this, that the mission of God into the promised land, which is part of the central part of the Old Testament, begins with a porn star. The mission of God begins in sin. Rahab, 
is alone in sin. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to read 2, 1 through 21. When we get to verse 11, I'm going to have us all just kind of read it out loud. I'm kind of liking this. You know, every once in a while we all do this together. Are you all liking it too? All right, good. If you didn't, we'd still do it. All right. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men. So this is two men. Have you wondered why he sent two? Why didn't he send 12 like the last time when Moses did it? How did that work out? Do y'all remember that story? It didn't work out. Only two, only two saw God. Everyone else saw giants and grasshoppers, right? So maybe that's why he only sends two this time. Who knows? So he sends two men secretly. You got to be careful with this one. Shatim and spies, as spies, and says, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king, the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out these men who have come to you and entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, true, the men came to me, but I do not know where they're from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, though. You'll certainly overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had made and laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them all the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So in other words, now they're locked in the city. They're trapped. These dudes are trapped. (laughs) Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Again, all of this is very interesting double meanings. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that you fear, that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. She's heard about Egypt. This is unbelievable. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, Og, whom you devoted, devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear by me, by the Lord, that as I have dealt hesed with you, kindly with you, graciously with you, you would also deal hesed with me in my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters. you got to wonder, though, like, what kind of relationship do you think she had with her mom and dad? Seriously. Do you think she had a good relationship with them? Oh, I doubt it very seriously. And all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the, med said, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. They're forming a covenant here. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal hesed and faithfully with you, graciously with you, lovingly with you. Then she let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we are guiltless with respect to our oath of, of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, When we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which we 
you let us down, and you shall gather us into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on his head, on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you've made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away. They departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask that uh, you would speak us back to life this morning. Would you shine on the page? Oh, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would like the valley of bones, would you come in and make us stand and rise and put us back together again. Well, Lord, we all need this, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're towards the end of a mini-series on stories from the dark, right? We've seen, uh, first was Jacob alone in the dark, then we went to Job alone in the ashes, then we went to Paul alone in abuse, and today we're looking at Rahab alone in sin. So we're trying to look at stories in the dark and find some light in them, right? And again, I think we'll probably do maybe Gideon or Daniel next week, and then maybe we'll just do both of them, and then, and then we'll be done, and uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do next. I told you I've wanted to get into the stories that Jesus tells, wanted to do that, so we'll see if we'll kind of move in that direction or not. You never know, because something might happen in the world again, and then we're back into more of a what what do we need to hear specifically that's going to lead the way for the text? The text is always going to address us, but sometimes I lead with it. Sometimes I just say, hey, we're going to go with this text and have it address us, or I'm going to say, there, oh, there's this need, and then we're going to go with the text. So it, either way, it's going to happen. So here's the question this morning. How do you survive sin? How do you survive sin? With Paul, it was about surviving abuse. It was about what comes at you. With Rahab, it's much more difficult. It's about what comes out of you. It's about you and me. How do you survive you? How do I survive me? This might be the darkest darkness of them all. So how do you survive you? How do we survive sin? I'm going to warn you, uh, you're not going to like Joshua's answer. You're not going to like it. I mean, we're just going to say it up front. We've got we to do this. We've got to have honest conversations. You are not going to like the answer that this text is going to have for us on how to survive. You're not going to like it. The Bible, in fact, is consistent. Uh, you're going to want to ignore it. So in other words, right when we start moving into the answer, <laughs> you're going to start thinking about lunch. You know you are. You're going to start getting emotionally prepared for the Cowboys to lose again today. You're going to, you're going to start planning. You're going to start thinking about that assignment that you have. And I guess now that, that what, the, the finals are going to be online. Finals are online, so you're going to start thinking about that. I don't know. So the question of how do you define sin, Joshua's answer you're not going to like. Here it is, though. I'm just going to tell you because that's the kind of guy I am. You don't survive sin. 
No one survives sin. Perhaps the number one controversy in all the Bible is what happens in the promised land. It is the most controversial. It's the hottest topic. It was whenever first seminary started, and it is to seminaries to this day. When everyone starts moving into the promised land, things start getting weird. Everybody wants to know what is going on in the promised land. Like Jericho is slaughtered. Men, women, and children are slaughtered. And then next on the list is I. I is slaughtered. Men, women, and children slaughtered. And then what's next? You got the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all slaughtered. Men, women, and children slaughtered. By the end of by the end of Joshua's life, the only people left in the promised land are the Philistines, and that's who David ends up dealing with, right? And there's some Geshurites and the Avim and the Sidonians and Lebanon and people that lived in the hill country. So they had to be wild people that lived in the hill country to survive the slaughter. But the time is also ticking on them. That's just, Joshua couldn't get to them. So someone else was going to have to do that. In a church history class that I took with Dr. Hannah, uh, he gave one assignment, and it was on this passage, on these passages in the promised land. It was in church history, and I, I couldn't figure out why he did it, and now I know why he did it. He said, this is what I want you to do. In one page, I want you to answer this question, and I went and looked up the question. I have it in my notes, and I have the paper. Here's the question. How do you explain God's immoral, undemocratic behavior in the Old Testament? How do you explain the immoral God in the Old Testament? And he goes on to say, especially annihilating the people of the promised land, men, women, children. He said, your answer will determine your view of God. It will determine your view of the Bible. Your answer will set the direction of your ministry. And I thought, no pressure. One page? <laughs> One page. Joshua wants us to take something about this passage so deep into your bones that it never gets out. Joshua wants something to settle so deep into your blood that you bleed it for the rest of your life. Joshua and the beginning of this promised land annihilations. Extinctions, whatever you want to call them, that the book of Joshua wants it to be so clear to your mind and so real to your heart that it does shape your view of God, that it does shape how you read the Bible, that it does set the direction of your life. Here it is. I'm just going to give you the answer. The book of Joshua wants you to know you. Me, politicians, cultural leaders, church leaders, big tech Mongols, moguls. <laughs> Woo! That was great. Oh, my word. 
This is only one service, so that got taped, didn't it? Ah, that's great. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Joshua wants you to know, wants all of us to know, all of us to know. Here it is. You ready? We are not neutral. We're not neutral people. We're not people that simply need to be challenged to be better and do better with God's help. We're not people that simply need to be inspired to be better and do better with educational help, with scientific and technological help, with institutional help, with ideological political help, with social justice help. Joshua is saying we're not neutral, we're falling down. We are falling down. Rahab, Jericho, the people of the promised land, you and me, everyone, everywhere are not still in the game. In other words, we, we tend to think that we're still in the game. We tend to think that, look, we're in the middle of a cosmic trial and we're desperately trying to prove ourselves in the middle of this cosmic trial. We're awaiting this ultimate final verdict. We actually think we're in the middle of it. But Joshua says the game's over already. The trial is over already. The verdict's already in. This is why the Apostle Paul says to everyone in Romans, this is why the greatest theological book in the Bible, the greatest theological book ever written, certainly, in the first three chapters, he just wants to establish this fact. He wants to say, listen, people, we are not neutral people. He wants to establish it to religious people and irreligious people, to church people and unchurched people, to moral people and immoral people, to bad people and good people, to hardworking people and lazy people, to Marxists and constitutionalists, to progressives and conservatives, to the wolves and the sheep and the sheepdog. Paul says, silence. Literally, let every mouth be stopped. We are not neutral people. Neutral people is a myth. There are no neutral people. Rahab understands this. It, it got clear to her mind and real to her heart. It got deep in her bones. It got into her blood. It actually worked itself into her DNA. She gets this. How do we know this? Because look what she says in 2.9. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Whoa. She continues, and that the fear of you has fallen on us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of you. Then she goes down, listen to what she says in verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. And then look again. Listen to what she says in verse 13. Save alive. Please, save alive my father. Save alive my mother. Save alive my family. Don't miss this. And all who belong to them. 
deliver our lives from death. Do you see it? She already knows she's dead. I'm not neutral. I'm guilty. I'm not neutral. I'm condemned. I'm not neutral. I'm a corpse sealed in its tomb. Rahab is saying, I am falling down. And she's saying, Jericho always falls down. It's what Jericho does. Luther had a buddy named Erasmus, and this buddy was a brilliant man. He was a classicist. He recovered. He was part of the renaissance and the recovery of going back to the classics, right? And Luther had this buddy. He made friends with him. He was having gospel conversations with him. But Luther said this about Erasmus, his dear buddy. If you read his stuff, you tend to think, man, they were so like. <laughs> no, they actually were just like us communicating on social media. They sound exactly the same. But he says this of Erasmus. He says, Erasmus consistently speaks of the law of God as if it had not already condemned him. As if he had all the time in the world to organize himself and his morality to meet its goal. He imagined himself as a neutral man, unlike captive Israel, who is not yet under God's judgment, constantly addresses himself in the third person as a moral object. He imagines Erasmus saying to himself, Erasmus, you can do this. And he imagines that he may just be the one special person at the end of his life to hear God say, life instead of death. Wow. Theologian Ted Boynton, a Chicago salesman and the main character in the 1994 movie Barcelona, says it this way. Positive thinking is fine in theory, but whenever I try it on on a systemic basis, systematic basis, I end up really depressed. The story of Rahab and the story of the people of the promised land is designed to touch us. It's designed to get so deep into our bones. It's designed to actually become a part of our DNA in such a way that we say without hesitation, I'm not a neutral person. I'm falling down. Jericho always falls down. It's what Jericho does. The bad stuff that comes out of us, y'all, I want you to think of all the bad stuff that comes out of us. So again, stuff comes out of us. We don't necessarily see the stuff inside of us until it comes out of us. And usually it's a relationship, comes into our life, and oh, you see it. Or a circumstance, or suffering, or cultural crisis, or a pandemic. Anything can be a form, something that comes in, hits our life, and all of a sudden we see something come out of us, and we're like, oh, well, the bad stuff that comes out of us, let's just think about it, generally speaking, because we don't want to get too personal because that's too uncomfortable, but we're thinking like our bad thinking that comes out of us. You start noticing your bad thinking. It's coming out of you. You start noticing your bad feelings, your bad desires. It's coming out of you. You start, you start noticing the bad way you relate to people. It comes out of us. You start noticing the bad way you act behavior. It comes out of us. 
The bad stuff that comes out of us doesn't make us guilty. The bad stuff that comes out of us doesn't condemn us. The bad stuff that comes out of us doesn't make us a corpse sealed in its tomb. The bad stuff that comes out of us is evidence that we already are. We already are. We're already guilty. We're already condemned. We're already a corpse sealed in its tomb. So how do you survive sin? How do we survive sin? Answer, we don't like it. We're thinking about lunch, about the cowboys, our assignment. We don't survive sin. I'm always falling down. Jericho always falls down. It's what it does. I want you to look at verse 18. This is phenomenal. Like everything changes. The story doesn't end and everything changes at verse 18. Behold, <laughs> Rahab, the two spies. You can just see it. They're fixing their eyes on her. They're like, Rahab, pay attention. Pay attention to what we're about to say. Here's what we're about to say to you, Rahab. When we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet, which means red cord. Now this is unbelievably like uncomfortable because the scarlet red cord in the ancient world the red cord is what prostitutes hung up on their house or their apartment or wherever they're staying it was the business card it was the signal this is where a prostitute is this is where you can go men and they are saying behold Rahab pay attention when we come into the land I want you to tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house all your father, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. What's happening here? This is stunning. This is unbelievable. This is shocking. What's happening here? Don't miss it. I want you to know that people, people debate this. Even though we don't know what's happening here, I want you to know that Rahab does. Bible scholars argue about what's happening here. I've read it. Important Bible teachers and communicators argue about what's going on right now in this passage. Right now, what it means. Right now, what it's going on. But even though we're arguing over it and we still argue it over it, I want you to know that Rahab does know what's going on. She does. It's clear to her. How do we know that? Because she tells us. She told us already in verse 9 and 11 and 13. She already told us, listen, I heard what happened in Egypt. I heard, I heard about a strange love in Egypt. I heard about the strange love that went through Egypt and passed over your guilt and passed over your condemnation and passed over your corpse sealed in its tomb. That spared firstborn sons who were going to get the guilt of the family and the condemnation of the family, and deservedly so. I heard about a strange love that passed over guilt, condemnation, death. And now it's passing over me.
it's passing over me. The greatest sign of my sin is now my deliverance. If a reporter from the Jericho Times was to go up to Rahab and say, hey, how do you know this, Rahab? Seriously, how do you know this? How do you know about this strange love? You talk about this strange love. How do you know about the strange love, the strange love that's found you, the strange love that's passed over you? How do you know and how do you experience the strange love? How can you be so sure of the strange love? Rahab, how can you be so free? How can you live so free from your guilt, from your condemnation, from your corpse? Because of the scarlet blood. She'd say, because of the scarlet blood that was smeared on doorposts in Egypt, and because of the scarlet cord that symbolizes the scarlet blood that hangs over me now, that's how I know. Behold, Rahab, pay attention. When we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet red cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. So how can you be sure? How can I be sure of this strange love? How can you be sure of the strange love right now? How can you know this strange love right now? How can you, if you're a Christian, how can you experience the strange love? Right now. How can this strange love get into your bones? How can it work itself into your very blood and your DNA so that you actually live free from your guilt and from your condemnation and from your shame and from being a corpse sealed in its tomb? How does this happen By the power of scarlet blood. By the power of Jesus becoming your Jericho. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you just don't believe this strange love, when you can't feel it and you can't think it, and later in the week when someone is mean and criticizes you or abuses you or is a bully or when you feel rejected or you feel like you're unloved and you feel so alone and you feel so isolated, how? How do you know? How does it become real? When Jesus becomes your Jericho. He loves me. He became my guilt. He became my condemnation. He became the corpse sealed in the tomb. I'm free. Absolutely free. Luther says it this way, the sinner cannot change. You can't change. I know this is a shock. This is like, 
I mean, everyone around the world right now, everyone in the chaos that we're in right now thinks, thinks we can change things. Education is going to make it better. Technology is going to make it better. Science is going to make it better. Moral instruction is going to make it better. New political ideologies are going to make it better. Uh, bullying is going to make it better. Canceling is going to make it better. Whatever. Luther says it this way, the sinner cannot change, but he can be changed radically from death to life when Jesus becomes your Jericho. Stunningly, verse 15 tells us, quote, her house, Rahab's house, was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Everyone that's had a little bit of dabble in, in the Bible, a little bit of dabble, maybe it was a vacation Bible school, maybe it was a grandmother, maybe you just heard Bible stories. Everybody might have sung that stupid song about the walls falling down, right? There are, these are famous walls. Jericho's walls are famous, and we know that they marched around later in the story. They marched around seven times, and the walls came what? Tumbling down, right? The walls came tumbling down except one wall. Rahab's. Rahab's wall didn't fall because Jesus was her Jericho. How do we survive sin? Answer, we don't. I am falling down. Jericho always falls down. Falling down is what Jericho does. How do we survive sin? But Jesus is my Jericho. Jesus is my guilt. Jesus is my condemnation. Jesus is my corpse sealed in the tomb. No more falling down. 